Heavenly Father, for this time where we can gather in Your presence and we can celebrate the great work on Calvary that Christ has accomplished for each and every one of us. Thank You, Lord, that Your grace is extended to us through the cross, has ransomed and redeemed us, set us apart, and given us things to worship You for, Lord, and reason to congregate this day and the assurance that our prayers are heard through our intercessor, Jesus Christ. As we celebrate the veil torn this morning, signaling free access into your presence, even in our text today, I pray that we would realize with hearts afresh, with thanksgiving and praise, that today, this day, we can go through the place, Lord, that once was restricted to only the high priest through our high priest, Jesus Christ, into perfect communion and fellowship, ever blossoming into glory. We thank you, God, for these promises. I pray, Lord, that as we look at your great gospel, as we open our ears and eyes, Lord Jesus, to the testimony of truth recorded therein, I pray that your Holy Spirit would use the preaching this day to mark upon our souls how profound and powerful, Lord, the work of the cross truly was and is for all who trust and believe Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Bless this time, we pray, unto fruitfulness for your name's sake. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Praise God. I invite you to turn in your scriptures to Matthew 27 this morning. What a great privilege it is for us to honor the Lord, to worship Him, to bring our hallelujahs, our hosannas heavenward, and also to open His scriptures and with the Spirit's help to see what they might say to us this day with respect to the gospel of Jesus Christ our Lord. We're in our Matthew series and we're coming to the end of Matthew's account. But as we do so, the truth and the events, the power that is packed into the record only increases. As we see Christ hanging on Calvary's cross, as we see the events that immediately follow leading up to his resurrection. We're going to consider just a few of these events today under the title, Lord at Thy Death. Lord at Thy Death. That is, Jesus is Lord even in His death. Would you stand with me, if, you're, if you would, with your Bible open to Matthew 27. We'll, uh, follow me as I read verses 51 through 54. And let us now behold and revere the Holy Word of God. And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, the tombs were opened, and many of the bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. And when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly, this was the Son of God. You may be seated. This is the Word of God. This morning, the aim and application of this message that I hope we at least take away is this much, that our confidence and our confession would be quickened as we behold, even in His death, Jesus is Lord. May our confidence, that is our faith, our confident affirmation that God has called and equipped us and that His Word is absolutely true, 
for us and for the whole world, may our confidence and our confession, that is, our understanding and proclamation of the truth, the facts of the gospel, may they both be energized, found, uh, found, more firmly founded, and quickened, given new life or more life as we behold that even in His death, Jesus is Lord. Jesus, Lord, at thy death. You recall the well-known Christmas hymn that echoes Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. I believe it's Silent Night, if I'm not mistaken. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Why is that phrase striking when you consider it closely? Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. It's striking for this reason, because it's a paradox. Jesus is Lord, yet here he is in this manger, taking on human flesh, a helpless babe, born to a virgin Mary on that cold night so long ago in an obscure place where there was no room for the inn and it seemed like the odds were against this little one even surviving the night as Joseph is frantic trying to find a place for his wife to have her little son. But juxtaposed against this reality of the humility of Christ in His incarnation and taking on flesh was this undying fact of all of history that Jesus, even at His birth, was yet Lord of lords. Hard to imagine. There were those, though, who, empowered by the Holy Spirit, recognized as much. We remember those in the temple that prophesied. We remember the kings that came to give Him homage as King of kings, or wise men, that is to say, foreign dignitaries to honor the one who when they recognized, though small in his human form, was yet Lord of all. And so we can say the same in Christ's death. Our text today reminds us that just as striking as beholding the Lordship and sovereignty of Christ in His incarnation as a helpless babe, so it can be said of His work on Calvary as well. That is to say, Jesus Lord, at thy death. Again, the juxtaposition is powerful, is it not? Here you have a helpless, humiliated, broken man who cannot help himself or fight back against his accusers, not even enough strength in his lungs to make a case to defend himself against the mockery and accusations. He's bleeding, He's humiliated, he's exhibited before the whole world in this horrific picture of pitiful destruction. And yet even at that moment, Jesus was and is Lord. Jesus, Lord at thy birth. Jesus, Lord in thy ministry. Jesus, Lord in thy death. Jesus, Lord in thy resurrection. Jesus, Lord at your ascension. Jesus, Lord at your session. Jesus, Lord, at your second coming. Jesus, Lord, at the great judgment at the final day. And Jesus is Lord of new Jerusalem. This is the message of the gospel through and through. No matter what position or place that Jesus is in, in his work in the incarnation, before and beyond, he is Lord. We see this in our text today. Immediately upon the finished work of Calvary, while Jesus is still hanging lifeless, and humiliated on that cruel implement of torture, heaven and earth ascribe glory to Him. Heaven, earth, and even people ascribe glory to Him while He is yet in this state of humiliating, cruel death. A series of events immediately follow, indicating that everything must bow or will be broken 
by the reality and advent of Christ crucified. Throughout covenant history, we see a pattern which signals milestones achieved in God's redemptive work. At the times and events of particular importance, when those milestones are reached of God's redemptive plan, they are often, invariably in fact, highlighted by the intrusion of supernatural events. In extraordinary ways, God draws attention through the miraculous to something that is going on in history upon which salvation it hinges itself. And so it stands to reason. And in the ministry of Christ, culminating in these moments in Matthew, and in the message of Jesus then going forth to the world, these events would be launched with such profound and miraculous signs, demonstrating, in fact, that Jesus is Lord even at His death. Let me give you a heading under which we'll consider three main points this day. Our heading is, Consider <clears throat> what bowed or was broken immediately at the cross. <clears throat> Again, <clears throat> Consider what bowed before the Lord in worship or was broken immediately at the cross. In other words, worship and judgment are featured in the events, in the reaction, in the immediate fallout of Christ on Calvary. We'll consider three things. The old covenant order bowed to Jesus Christ. Secondly, earth and the grave bowed to Jesus Christ. And thirdly, people and powers bowed and were broken before the Lord. First of all, the old covenant order bowed to Jesus Christ. Temple priest, temple order became obsolete in that it was fulfilled in Jesus Christ, the new high priest, the new temple, and this was signaled immediately upon Jesus' death. Again, let us back up a few verses and consider the context, verse 45 of our text today. Now from the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, this man is calling Elijah. And one of them at once ran, took a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink. But the others said, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. We pause there and note Christ is Lord at his death. Notice that his spirit was not wrested from him. Notice that the life was not taken from him. Instead, this phrase quite, quite accurately illustrates his sovereignty in his suffering. Christ yielded up his spirit. He was absolutely in control of the moment of his death, even as he was at the moment of his birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy birth. Jesus, Lord, at thy death. But notice immediately what happens. Jesus cries out with a loud voice. He yields up his spirit, that is to say, he succumbs, he dies, in fact. He offers himself as a sacrifice in this moment. And then verse 51 follows, And behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. 
Consider the old covenant order, bowing before Jesus Christ, Lord, at his death. If we look in Exodus chapter 26, verses 31 through 33, we can see a record of this curtain in the first place. This was the barrier symbolized by those draperies, by that veil that separated the most holy place from the holy place, the courtyard, and the temple or tabernacle, the area of worship. And you recall what was unique and specific and special about this place, do you not? In there, the Ark of the Covenant rested, upon which was the, sea, or the mercy seat, overshadowed by the wings of the cherubim, and inside were different markers of God's covenant relationship with His people, among them that His law must be revered and kept perfectly. The tablets of Moses' commandments were laid up in the same Yet this veil stood between the people in this place. The people at the time of the Old Testament wanderings were in the millions, no doubt, certainly hundreds of thousands. And even the spatial proximity of that location was so tiny that they couldn't even fit. If the people wanted to have the closest possible relationship with God, even the spatial location prohibited them. But that was nothing compared to the moral and the righteous barrier that separated them from fellowship with the Almighty. The fact that they, as sinners, stood outside the place of God's residing, and only upon perfect atonement could they enter in, was this true separation between sinful man and a holy God. This was the problem that the, gospels, that the gospel itself addresses, most fundamentally and directly. Separation, alienation, judgment, condemnation, and hell that every sinner deserves upon the breaking of God's holy law in his sin. This was the banishment and judgment Adam and Eve experienced in the garden and all of the seed of Adam have experienced ever since. Pictured in this typological form was the distance between a holy God and, and a sinner. We also see it at Mount Sinai. There was prohibitions. You could not, rules against, drawing near to the Lord. What would happen if you drew near to him as a sinner without, again, sufficient atonement? You would immediately be struck dead. And so the veil stood before man and his entrance into the holy place, into perfect, fulfilled relationship, communion, a restoration and beyond of Eden itself, walking and talking, communicating with the Lord, existing in his favor and grace. Now, the timing of this moment of Jesus' death, the Scripture records, would likely have been exactly the time when the high priest was standing outside that veil, offering incense on the altar. And on this very day, the moment when Christ died, the old temple order, the separation of God and man, bowed before Jesus Christ. Immediately at the cross, that veil was torn from top to bottom, signaling that this was a sovereign act from God, from heaven down to earth, making way for our free entrance and access through the man that hung on the cross into the holy presence of an almighty God, because on that day when Christ died, our sins were atoned for. May I never grow tired of preaching this. And may you never grow tired of hearing. The secondly, the temple. 
Consider Jesus' own prophecy in John chapter 2. Jesus had said he would compare himself to a temple. We covered this two weeks ago, anticipating this very moment and the reality of what was accomplished. In John chapter 2, this was the prophecy for which he was pilloried and for which he was falsely condemned. We see in verse 18, the Jews asking him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple three days, I will raise it up. The Jews says, said, thinking of course of Herod's temple, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and will you raise it up in three days? Verse 21, but he was speaking about the temple of his body. Jesus would supplant the temple, the mere construction by human hands, which that which was offered to us by the hand of Almighty God himself. When therefore, verse 22, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. And now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing, but Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and they needed no one to bear witness and needed no one to bear witness about man for he himself knew what was in man. That last note I wanted to include because there was certainly no greater sign of the reason for which Christ came than this moment upon his death that immediately took place. The curtain that separated man and God being destroyed, ripped, torn, entrance provided top to bottom as heaven invaded earth through the incarnate Son fulfilling the work on Calvary that is necessary to unite in perfect fellowship us who are estranged from the Lord in Adam and demonstrated as much in our own sins and the holy God who has made a way through the blood of His Son for our sin to be covered and atoned and for us to be once again reunited in communion with Him. Matthew 24, verse 1 and 2. Jesus prophesied not just the rebuilding of His own flesh after its own destruction on the cross, but He prophesied the destruction of the temple itself. 24.1, Jesus left the temple and was going away, and His disciples came to point to, him, uh, point to Him the buildings of the temple. Obviously, they were impressed, uh, very impressed by the temple. Why else would you draw Jesus' attention to something saying, hey, look at this, isn't this amazing? This is a man who had already demonstrated his power to multiply bread to feed thousands, to walk on water, to heal sick, cleanse lepers, and raise the dead. Yet the disciples were so, still so impressed by, these, by this building and what it represented that they thought Jesus would be amazed to see it. They didn't quite fully understand that it would be supplanted in Him as of yet. But He indicates this when He says in judgmental terms, verse 2, He answered them, You see these, do you not? Truly I say to you, there will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. This temple will be reduced to rubble. But also, the meaning and substance and essence of this temple will no longer be contained and housed and limited to the geographic spatial proximity of this real estate on Mount Zion. It would be, in fact, the essence and substance would take residence in Christ Himself. And now, after the cross, and after the veil is rent, those who worship Him 
in spirit and truth, enjoy communion and relationship no matter where they are. Let the old stones crumble. Let the old veil be torn. Let the old implements drift into obscurity. And if there's any providential reason that one could offer why we can't find the Ark of the Covenant, perhaps this is it. We do not need it anymore. Because Christ is the temple, Christ is the Ark, and may we be more compelled and find Him to be glorious and amazing, compelling and powerful and beautiful, the place of our communion with the Lord. May our eyes move off the tangible, the worldly, the earthly things that were made of man, like the temple here, and may they look to Christ. Because in Him and only in Him is the fullness of what the temple symbolized, actually realized. We now have, by this work of the old covenant bowing before Jesus, Lord, at His death, unveiled access to the Lord. To underscore what I've already said, let us move quickly to Hebrews and cover a few verses. Just read out a few verses that we've studied in recent weeks. Hebrews 10, Hebrews 9, and Hebrews 10. Hebrews 9, verse 11, the author pointedly, vividly, and in detailed fashion identifies this moment of Christ on Calvary with redemption and its meaning and effect. When he says, verse 11, But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, so this, again, the greater tabernacle or greater temple, parentheses, not made with hands, that is, not of this creation. He, again, speaking of Christ, verse 12, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of His own blood, thus securing eternal redemption. Unveiled access through the broken body shed blood of Christ into the holy places. Again, the next chapter over, Hebrews 10, 19-23, we read the following, Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way, since that He opened for us through the curtain that is through His flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. That is the theological meaning of the event in Matthew 27 when the veil is torn in the holy place from top to bottom. The old and dead way, as it were, has given place to the new and living. The high priest who was a sinner and himself needed atonement has given way to the sinless high priest who shed his own blood to secure entry through him to draw near in full assurance with our hearts sprinkled clean, purified, sanctified by the washing of pure water that is the cleansing agent of Christ's own blood. So we see the old covenant order bowed before Christ, Lord, at His death. 
Secondly, let us consider how earth and grave bowed before the Lord. Death and the grave and the earth itself, the elements of nature, bowed before the Lord when He was crucified on Calvary. The second half of the first verse of our text tells us as much as we go back to Matthew 27 and note again. Behold, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And notice the second phrase then, or second half of the verse. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. goes on to say the tombs were opened. But let's pause and consider this momentous occasion when the elements of the earth itself bowed before Jesus' Lord at His death. The earth shook and the rocks split. This is something of an earthquake that happened not because in the natural order, the settling of tectonic plates or what have you, shifted a little bit and the earth shuddered under that movement. This was not a signal from the natural order. This was a signal from a supernatural order. God Himself with His own finger, as it were, on Calvary, touched the earth with His atoning blood. The earth, the elements of nature themselves responded broke forth into praise of the Almighty God shaking and quaking before the momentous occasion of God invading history and offering His own Son as a payment for our sin. The earth shook with the reality of this seismic shift in redemptive history. And rocks were torn open by the very word and hand of God. And chasms opened wide before His glory manifest in this moment. Later we see in chapter 28 similar language. Now after the Sabbath, verse 1, toward the dawn of the first day of the week, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went to see the tomb. And behold, again, what happened? There was a great earthquake for an angel of the Lord descended and came and rolled back the stone and sat on it. At Christ's resurrection and at His death, the elements of the earth itself responded in worship to Him, and there was a great shaking. What could this event mean? Well, it's interesting to see the effect that it had on those who gathered. If you look in parallel accounts in the Gospels, you see that as these things were unfolding, as the earth itself bowed before Jesus, Lord, at His death, the people began to beat their breasts. And what was this uh, gesture and what did this metaphor indicate? Well, it indicated that they knew that something was horribly wrong. That these events spelled imminent judgment for them. Those who had mocked just moments before mocked the Lord at His death and said, if God really loved you, then He would release you from this circumstance. If you are really the sovereign, the Lord of all, why don't you step down from the cross? If you can save others, why don't you save yourself? Suddenly, in fear and trembling, the multitudes who gathered were aware that there was more to this picture than they initially realized. That this man in his death, Somehow God was intervening in a supernatural way, moving heaven and earth and shaking the foundations of the soil beneath their feet. Rocks were split. People were screaming. They were crying out in woeful expectation of judgment. The earthquake announcing 
that Jesus was Lord. A commentator uh, Benson records historical examples of a deist who had some geological uh, expertise who visited the Holy Land. And I am unaware of these locations, but apparently he saw areas where there were fissures made in rocks. You know, this perhaps a few hundred years ago. And he noted that they didn't follow the sedimentary lines. And they were unnatural tears in the stone, as it were. And this was enough for this man to confess faith in Jesus Christ. If this account is true, then the, the rocks themselves testified thousands of years later and were enough to, uh, to instruct God using them to instruct this man that the power that was evident on that day shook heaven and earth and it better shake you to your core. If God who created this earth in the first place holds it together in the palm of his hand, has the power to bring judgment and shake the foundations underneath our feet in a moment, should we not cry out to him for salvation, for security, for assurance? Yes. We see in this account signals of judgment. If you were to turn to Nahum chapter 1, verse 5 and 6, prophetic language in the Old Testament employs the shaking of the earth to indicate the power of God coming in reckoning and in judgment. Nahum chapter 1, verse 5, The mountains quake before him, the hills melt, the earth heaves before him, and the world and all who dwell in it. This is exactly what happened the day that Jesus died. Before him, Christ crucified, the mountains were quaking, the hills were melting, the earth was heaving, and those who dwelt therein are beginning to realize that they are in deep trouble. Verse 6, who can stand before his indignation? Who can endure the heat of his anger? His wrath is poured out like fire, and rocks are broken into pieces by him. Christ in his death proved himself as Lord when rocks were broken in pieces by him even as he hung on the cross. God uses this event. He also uses darkness and light through the course of his revelation to demonstrate his power to defeat his enemies. He uses nature itself to his advantage all through scriptures. Think of the plagues that fell on Egypt. The sun was darkened and darkness came across the land. And now think of the darkness that has encroached even at this time when Luke records the sun forbears to shine. Now the sixth hour there was darkness over all the land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice. Later we see on the opposite end of the spectrum in Joshua's long day, the sun stood still in its place, allowing God to defeat his enemies. So we see throughout the course of redemptive history that when darkness and light and the earth are employed as devices to proclaim the Lord's power, that man better bow before him because they indicate the distinct advantage that the Lord of glory has over every one of his enemies. If the earth quakes before him, so do his enemies. Secondly, under earth and grave, death and the grave, bow to Jesus Christ. 
Again, in verse 51, the curtain of the temple is torn in two from top to bottom of Matthew 27. And the earth shook and the rocks were split. And notice verse 52. What's the next thing that happened? The tombs also were opened and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many. Death and the grave bow to Jesus Christ, Lord at his death. Do you recall uh, deep in Egypt as God's people are making preparations to leave to the promised land? There were special instructions that Joseph gave the care of his bones. The decaying matter of his mortal form was to be packaged carefully and taken from Egypt, where? To the promised land. Joseph asked that his own remains be relocated to the place where God's people would dwell. It is as if in this act of faith he was anticipating this very moment. Now I do not know who was actually raised from the dead. The record does not tell us. It simply says that saints who had fallen asleep were raised. But imagine if someone like Joseph, whose bones had been transferred to the promised land, received life again and entered the city and began to proclaim the power of God's deliverance that he experienced in symbolic form in Egypt, now manifest in, subst in substance and in glory in Jesus Christ. Is that not a compelling message? And is that not a compelling messenger? Whoever they were, these saints had a unique perspective on Jesus, Lord, at his death. Because at Calvary, they had received new life, and they proclaimed that Jesus Christ, in his work on Calvary, declared victory over and gave power over death and the grave to all who are in him. For those enlightened by the prophecies of Scripture, this should have come as no surprise. In John chapter 5, Jesus has said as much from his own lips. In John chapter 5, he prophesied events that would take place in these moments, and among them the saints rising from the dead. Truly, truly, verse 25, I say to you, an hour is coming and is now here when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God. And those who hear will live. This verse will be fulfilled in more than one way, let me submit to you. But one way it was fulfilled immediately on the cross is when Christ cried out. Listen, verse 50. Jesus cried out with a loud voice in Matthew 27 and yielded up his spirit. What happened at that moment? At that moment, those who were dead heard the voice of the Son of God and after his own resurrection... They themselves were raised. Those who heard the word of Christ from beyond the grave lived. And they went in and proclaimed the message of the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. As in Adam, all die. And so the saints who had gone before had died. And we will die. But so in Christ shall all be made alive. And so the saints were raised. And so will we. 1 Corinthians 15, 22 through 23 tells us as much. Each in his own order. Christ as the first fruits, and then all of his own will follow. They will hear his voice beyond the grave and will rise because death and the grave bow to Jesus, Lord at Calvary.
Finally this morning, let us consider how people and powers bow or are broken immediately at the cross. There is a cadre of confessing Roman soldiers who represent uh, three conquered categories, if you will. They represent Gentiles, an empire, and authorities. Immediately something happens upon Jesus' death that is utterly surprising to those who had suffered under the imperial power of Rome. We see this in verse 54. We've covered it in the past. Let's look again. When the centurion, which is a Roman soldier who's captain of a hundred or more, when the centurion and those who were with him, keeping watch over Jesus, saw the earthquake and what took place, they were filled with awe and said, Truly this was the Son of God. In this moment, representatives of Rome, an empire, themselves having authority, the centurion, a commander over troops, a superior war force of the day, armed with the technology that could defeat any of his potential enemies. This na- uh, nation, this empire, these authorities, these Gentiles, no cultural familiarity, so to speak, were favored to, was given to them in God's favor to understand what was going on, yet they bowed before Jesus at his death anticipating what was going to be the experience of you and me and every Gentile unbeliever who bows before Jesus, Lord, at his death. If you are a true believer in this room, if you have confessed faith in Jesus Christ as your Lord, you yourself are proof that he was Lord at his death. Because you have bowed before him, you have confessed with these Gentiles, with these pagans, Truly, this is the Son of God, speaking of Jesus Christ. Later in the text, flash forward to a three-point message, no doubt, in the future. You can circle all three times in three verses, 18, 19, and 20. Jesus came and said to them, chapter 28, verse 18, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Perhaps you can add a fourth all in the word always. All authority, all nations, all that God has spoken, always to the end of the age. This is the total and comprehensive power of Jesus' death pictured in both the example of the Gentiles confessing He was the Son and the commission to all believers now to go announce what He has done. Gentiles, empires, authorities, no one is any match for the crucified and risen Christ. You see other authorities shaking in their boots. They are broken before Christ's work on Calvary. The next day, verse 62, after preparation, the chief priests and Pharisees, again, chapter 27, they gather before Pilate and they say, Sir, we remember how this imposter said, while he was still alive, that in three days he will rise. Therefore, order that the tomb would be made secure. And so they go out, and you recall, they seal the stone, they set a guard, and they make provisions. 
They, try, they have a fear. In fact, they're shaking in their boots. They're afraid that the word of God may be true. And they utter in their futility, they try in their utter futility to take active steps to undermine the word of God. What was the word of God? In three days, I will rise from the dead. In three days, I will rebuild this temple. In three days, I will demonstrate my sovereignty, my authority over all nations, all powers, all authorities, all empires for all time. And so the authorities begin to scramble. They're scurrying around like rats when the light is shined into their little habitat. They run around trying in their futility to frantically do an end run around what will take place in just moments, in just days. And they will be unsuccessful. And the message that they proclaimed, they went out with their own great commission, proved an utter failure. The guards went into the city in verse 11, the chief priests, and they gave a sufficient sum of money to the soldiers, and they gave them a great commission, quote-unquote. Verse 13, tell people his disciples came by night and stole them away while we were asleep. If this comes to the governor's ears, we will satisfy him and keep you out of trouble. So he took the money and did as they were directed. Let me ask you, to this day, what is the record of these two messages? Which one is changing lives, saving souls, equipping saints, setting them on Jesus Christ as their firm foundation, and giving them the tools to renounce and proclaim and stand in a fallen world? Is it the message that we see the soldiers dispersing upon the bribery of the authorities? Oh, go tell them someone stole the body. Or is it the message that Jesus said after he rose? All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Yes, the second is true. Given more time, more power and authority is demonstrated all the more as all of the elect are rolling into the kingdom of God, reaped into the barns, the storehouses of glory. Thus, the message stands yet today, more powerfully than ever if it could be said. Those who do not bow will be broken before Jesus Christ, Lord at His birth, at His death, at His resurrection, His ascension, His session, His second coming, His final judgment, and Lord of New Jerusalem. This is our hope and stay, brothers and sisters. Let us close in prayer. O Lord Jesus, we thank you for the power of your gospel and for the authority that you exercised in your birth, in your ministry, in your death, and in all of your incarnate and redemptive work, ministry, and agency. Lord, from this I pray from our study today, may we gain great confidence and may our confession be sharpened and quickened as we behold, even in your death, that you are King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, strengthen us and equip us to bring this gospel to all who will have ears to hear as you grant them open eyes, open ears. Thank you that all authority has been given to you and so we, Lord Jesus, serve under the King of kings. Lord, I pray that if there are any here who have not bowed before you, that they would do so before they are broken, that all within the hearing of this message may know 
that in every act that you accomplished, you proved yourself king of kings. Let them bow, submit, and surrender to your payment for their sin and to your word through and through all that you have commanded unto the praise of your great name. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.